beginning at verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Morning, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open, although I will have the words from scriptures on the screen. I'll lead us in prayer as we come to this part of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, through whom we've been adopted as your children, and that as a loving Heavenly Father, you delight to speak to us and teach us, and that you reveal all that we need to know to live a God-centred life in Christ Jesus. Please help us as we come to this final instalment in uh, the letter of James, uh, to pay careful attention to what it is you'd uh, teach us, Uh, and to, uh, as a result, uh, live lives that are more pleasing to our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're a Christian who therefore rightly wants to live a God-centred life. For whatever reason, you find yourself stranded on a deserted desert island. Now let's assume, for the sake of argument, you've got the world's best survival skills. Uh, you are not going to have a problem finding food, clothing and shelter. Eventually you'll find your way back to civilization, but it could be months if not years before that happens. Now you don't just want to survive, you're a Christian, so you want to keep growing in your Christian maturity. Obviously you've got prayer for followers of Jesus, you can pray anytime, anywhere, including on a deserted desert island. And so the first thing you say is, hey God, can I please have a Bible? You know that man doesn't live on coconut and raw fish alone and that you need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so the heavens open and God plonks down, let's say, a nice leather-bound Holman Christian Standard Bible with 10 book ribbons, water-resistant paper and no red letters. Sweet. (laughs) You've got prayer, you've got the Word of God. Brilliant. Now here's the question. What's the next thing? you hope to get. You want to persevere in your Christian life, in your growth and maturity. You want to keep God at the centre of your life. You've got his complete word, his full and final revelation is found in the scriptures. And you've got the ability to pray, obviously. What's the next 
thing that you'll need? Is it a commentary? Is it a bunch of sermon podcasts? Don't say a boat. <laughs> and, if, and, and as a matter of fact, don't say the answer. Even if you're married, you're not allowed to talk, right? Just think about it. Put it in your head. You've got the Bible. You've got prayer. You want to keep growing as a Christian. You want to live a God-centred life while you're stuck on this island. What's the next thing that you're going to consider essential for living this God-centred life? Now, take that thought and just lock it up there. Think about it. You've got the Bible. You've got prayer. Whatever that next thing is, right? Stick it in there. And hold on to that thought as we come to our last section, or our last section of James's letter. Now, to make sure we're all on the same page with uh, uh, James, we saw last week that uh, we are indeed to live lives with God at the centre. We cannot fit in with our materialistic culture, with the worldview that, that dominates our culture. We can't fit in with that. We've been saved and adopted by the true and living eternal God, who gives us treasure in heaven, which is infinitely more valuable than anything this world has to offer, and we live in accordance with his will. We don't make our plans saying we go to this town or that and make money. No, no, according to his will. God factors in, he features in the way we think. His will is to be determinative for our our planning and our lives. Um, And this holds true even amidst great persecution and great suffering. With the end of last week's uh, uh, chapter, uh, passage, sorry, uh, we hear about Job who persevered, uh, 5, 10 and 11. But apart from our planning and apart from our worldview, what else does it mean to, to live a God-centred life, perhaps in the more day-to-day? What does it mean to have God at the centre of our lives? And what do we do if the suffering or if the persecution gets so hard that we're tempted to compromise our God-centeredness. Well, that's where James is going to take us today in the last bit of his letter. But first, he needs to clarify something important. He makes it clear, just so we're all on the same page, that to be God-centered is not the same as to be religious. It's important clarification that he begins this last section with. Verse 12, he says... Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Now, this is something that hopefully you remember. Jesus himself, Jesus being James's older brother, actually, Jesus himself said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Don't make oaths. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And in the time and culture that James was repeating these words of Jesus, it would have shown up the sharp contrast between man-made religious practice and being like God, that is, being godly. That's what you get with, with the whole oaths thing. You see, we read in the New Testament of people inventing pious-sounding Uh, religious systems, a system of swearing oaths that have varying degrees of bindingness. When Jesus attacks the Pharisees, the religious leaders, for their false religion, uh, he attacks them for having a a, a system of oaths like this. He says, uh, this is uh, 
from uh, Matthew's gospel, woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, is bound by that. You can see the stupidity of this, can't you? You can see that people are just wanting to avoid being trustworthy with their words. Verse 19, you blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? I mean, if you go to go down the finicky little line, I can show you that this is a stupid religious system about making oaths. Verse 20, therefore anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. In other words, you make an oath, you're going to have to keep it and you're going to invent a pious sounding religious system to determine the sort of validity of your promises. That's ridiculous. 22, anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it, i.e. you're liable to judgment if you stuff around like this. Pious religious practices are actually mostly, if not exclusively, man-made, and they almost always serve as a subtle means of rejecting God's will rather than embracing it. And so James here, he's making a point, he's saying, if you want to live a truly God-centered life, don't buy into the religious bric-a-brac of our age. Be like God. God is always trustworthy and faithful with his words. And as a child, you know that children sort of exemplify the the characteristics of their parents. Well, if we're sons and daughters of the true and living God, we're not going to be into, you know, religious structures. We're going to be into being like God. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Be faithful, be trustworthy, mean what you say, say what you mean. So a God-centred life is not embracing worldly religion. It's important to get those distinctions, but it's being like God. What else does it mean to live a God-centred life? Well, it means we live with dependence on and gratitude toward God. So the next verse, verse 13. Oh, we've gone ahead. Oh, yeah, there it is. (laughs) Verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Uh, Sometimes when I'm in trouble, the last thing I think about is prayer. When I'm in trouble, normally it's panic, and I work out quickly how I can fix the problem. That's my gut reaction, my first instinct. How can I solve this problem? So as a Christian, I need to learn greater dependence upon God. Prayer needs to become my automatic response to trouble. Once upon a time, I was on an NTE, like we hosted some NTE people uh, at Christmas. And uh, on the way to where we were going, uh, some girls uh, were in this car and the car in front of them had a big crash and it rolled, right? So the the person was injured, but not critically, they didn't die. And there was another car, another team's member's car behind theirs and the guy in the car, that, that car behind said the first thing those girls did when they got out of the car is one was running to them and the other two stood there praying. He said, I couldn't believe it. But I should have believed it. That's the first thing that should have come to mind if we're a follower of Jesus. I didn't believe it either and I was rebuked uh, on account of that. What about when things are going well? When we're happy? 
Well, we're not to forget that every good gift comes from God. Instead of merely clapping along because I feel that happiness is the truth, I'm to learn to praise the God who has richly blessed me with every good gift in Christ. So that's fairly straight, straightforward. You want to be God-centred? That's not the same as being religious. It means depending upon God and it means giving gratitude. Praise God in song for all the good things he's done. But what about the person who's struggling in their faith? The person who's struggling to depend on God because the trouble is so bad and so much. The person who's struggling to praise God because there's not much they can be happy about. The person who finds it hard to pray with single-mindedness, perhaps because persecution or trials or ongoing difficulty or illness has made their trust in the Lord begin to, to waver. That could be you here this morning. Maybe you don't want to doubt, but life has been tough and you need help with your unbelief. Well, James now shows us how to be God-centred amidst weakness. Verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while... I'm assuming you've read these words or you heard them just as Sue read them before and like me, you've probably wondered what on earth is going on here. It doesn't seem to make sense. There is no other prescriptive ritual for healing in the New Testament. And you've probably noticed that we're not in the habit of covering sick people with oil. We know that all people sin... And we know that Jesus alone can forgive our sin. Yet here it says, if they have sinned. And it seems that the prayer of the elders affects forgiveness. So what on earth is going on here? Well, the word sick in verse 14 could mean physical illness. But it makes much more sense of the passage when viewed as a a metaphorical way to speak about spiritual weakness. You see, the word itself that's used here can actually translate weakness, and in fact it often is. Uh, For example, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, which says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. The context makes it clear that it can't be just one narrow thing like sickness. It's, it's all sorts of difficulties. It's weakness. Again, same word is translated weakness in Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit also joins to help us in our weakness because we do not know what we pray, uh, to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes, that is, he prays on our behalf with unspoken groanings. And in verse 15 in our our passage. The word there translated sick is also likely to be a metaphoric reference to spiritual weakness in general. The word itself could just as likely be translated weary. As a matter of fact, the, the only other time this word occurs in the New Testament is Hebrews 12.3, 
which says exactly that. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow sick, no, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, you will not be weakened in your faith. In all of these examples, the thing on view is spiritual weakness. And physical sickness is one way that could possibly contribute to Christians starting to doubt. And notice that such spiritual weakness hinders prayer. They need other people to come and do the the prayer thing for them. In other words, I think this is what's going on. Christians can find themselves in circumstances where it's very hard to keep God at the centre. It's hard to rejoice in the sufferings. It's hard to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. It's hard even to pray. Christians can grow weak and weary. And I'd not be surprised if there are Christians here this morning who will testify to that on the basis of their experience. What should you do if you've been persecuted or if you've been battered by life circumstances? You've endured long suffering at the hands of a bullying employer, a toxic workplace environment. You're the single mum who struggles to make life work day after day and you've hit rock bottom. You're the one grieving the death of a loved one and you don't know how you're going to keep going. You're the one sick of fighting against materialism You just want to give in and live a life of big houses, good cars and overseas travel at the expense of generosity, godliness and self-control. You've been diagnosed with a serious or a terminal illness and your sickness has landed you in a swamp of depression. Your spouse or your family member has caused you grief and conflict for so long when you've been so beaten down by living the Christian life amidst trials that you've started to doubt. You've started to become double-minded, flirting with the world. Perhaps you've even sinned on account of your desperation in addition to the way we all sin all the time. What do you do? How do you regain assurance? How do you get back on the horse? How do you persevere in a God-centred life when even prayer and assurance seem to have been compromised. Well, James's solution to such spiritual weakness involves a God-given gift, one of the most important things in the life of any and every Christian, something that deserves our time and energy and attention and service and thanksgiving, something that is made up exclusively of other Christians, which we call The church. See, it's the elders of the church who are to be called upon. The elders represent the church. And remember, the elders are the older and more mature Christians. Not just the teaching elder, like in our case that will be Jono, but it's assumed there are a plurality of elders who can help the weakened Christian. And they are to do something that visually demonstrates both a care and an acceptance of the weakened Christian. They had to pour some oil on them. That's what anoint means. It just means cover. Cover them with oil, which is a way of saying, yes, you are one of us. We do care for you. 
And like a Levitical priest of old, you are set apart to God like any other Christian. Perhaps the oil was to remind them, uh, of, uh, to, like David in Psalm 23, though you walk in the valley of the shadow of death and are in the presence of enemies, yet God prepares a table before them in the presence of those enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Perhaps it was to remind them of Psalm 45, 7. Your God has sent you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Perhaps it would emphasise their inclusion in the church of God's saved people so that again they could sing the words of Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard. Stay with me, people. I know the imagery is a little bit funny. (laughs) Down the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Perhaps that's the kind of thing that's on view. In any event, these elders, by anointing the weakened Christian are communicating that they are firmly within the people of God. And I think they can say that confidently because more important than the anointing with oil, these elders are to pray over them. And by the way, this is the only occurrence in the whole Bible where anything is ever prayed over. It's a unique, weird expression, and you're supposed to notice it. Nowhere else is anything ever prayed over. There's prayed for, prayed to, but not prayed over. I think it's as if they're saying, don't worry, brother. Don't worry, sister. We, our prayers have got you covered, like the oil. And in that way, the weakened Christian can find strength, can be assured of their salvation. Or to use James's words, they can be assured that the Lord will raise them up. They won't be left helpless on the last day. In other words, they're still in the fold. Like all Christians, they can retain their hope in the resurrection at the Lord's return. It is other Christians who are to be relied upon to help the weakened brother or sister. That's why when life gets tough, when you go through trials and difficulties, you are always much better off leaning in to your church family rather than seeking distance from it. We have this problem. When the trials come, the idea is you lean into God's people, not back away from them. Uh, Prayer and confession by yourself is a vital part and parcel of living a Christian life, but corporately relying on one another and helping one another is just as important. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. Or as we're following the metaphor, so that you'll be strengthened. If you want to be strengthened rather than weakened as a Christian, confess your sins, not to a special minister or a priest, but to each other. Pray for and presumably with each other. After the Bible and prayer, the most important thing for Christian growth and strengthening is other Christians. To put it another way, to live a God-centred life, we need one another. As a Christian on that desert island, once you got your Bible, the next most obvious thing you could hope for is another Christian. Dear God, please send another poor Christian to come and be stuck on this island with me. (laughs) 
Because when two or three are gathered, you can better see what it's like to have Jesus among you. And if one falls, he can help the other up. Both of those just quotes from the Bible. Now, James wants us to be assured that the Christian who currently isn't weakened, the Christian who is holding steadfast to the Lord, that his or her prayer can indeed be relied upon to help the one who might be suffering, who might be prone to double-mindedness on account of their weakness. And so he assures us, second half of verse 16, that yes, the prayer of that righteous person is powerful and effective. This is the system. This will work. And like a good Jew, he gives his uh, predominantly Jewish audience uh, a backup from Scripture. Verse 17, Elijah was a human being, just as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. It's a great story. It's in 1 Kings 17, if you're interested. Read it at home about Elijah. Uh, But we don't need to dig into that now. All we need to see here is that, well, for God's purposes, once uh, once upon a time, Elijah was required to pray fervently and through a long period of difficulty, three years. God brought him through by means of prayer. The time of trouble was long, but the time of refreshing and restoration finally came. And interesting, if you know the story, Elijah prayed for a widow who was otherwise going to starve to death, and she lived, and he prayed for her dead son, who then was raised to life. The prayer of the the righteous man was very powerful and effective during the time of great difficulty. The Bible, prayer and the church are God's prescribed means for spiritual growth. When things get tough in the Christian life, lean into your church family, not away from it. But what about the person who was not only weakened in the faith, but is actually wondering or has wandered away from the truth. Well, James teaches us that we should do the very best we can to not let them get away. We are not to be permissive of ongoing sin. We're to seek to bring them back, even at great cost. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth... And someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is a really great thing to do, in other words. Think about it. God may have, for you or for me, he may have planned that one day he'll be using some other person in this room to bring you back from falling away. If you're a soldier in an army and you're about to fight, it's easy to recognise the possibility that one of your fellow soldiers could one day be dragging your wounded body back to base to make sure you get fixed up. You'd form a pretty good bond with those other soldiers and you'd be pleased to have them alongside you. Well, how much more in the spiritual battle between now and the return of Christ should we, as his soldiers, delight that we're fighting together And that every Sunday we get time out to train together and be reminded of the mission and assured of our place within it. You can see how important one another is to our godly lives when you look at it that way. Now, sometimes a person who wonders from the truth can't be brought back. Sometimes it turns out they were never genuinely following the Lord in the first place. 
And when someone persists in immorality, the Bible teaches that sometimes the most loving thing to do is to sever all ties in the hope that God maybe will bring them to repentance. But that should be at the extreme end of the spectrum. Generally, Christians need to be bold enough and loving enough to say the hard words. Uh, My wife once had to say some very hard words to a friend who had all but resolved to leave her husband for another man. Stacey was right to risk the friendship, and she did lose the friendship, by the way, in order to remind this person of her marriage vows that God himself was witness to. And seeking to bring people back to God is actually a very God-centred thing to do. Why? Because, well, that's in the character of Jesus himself. See, the Bible tells me that when I was powerless, when I was so far gone, completely without hope of ever pleasing God, in other words, in my natural state as a sinner, it was then that Christ died for me, as he did for you, when you were also completely hopeless and helpless and powerless in your sin. Christ died for you. He took the punishment that we all deserve for our abandoning of God, and he did it so that sinners like us could return to God and find peace with him and therefore with one another. Jesus is still seeking sinners to bring back to God. He's looking for the wanderers. Uh, And that includes everyone who is not yet one of his followers. If you've never accepted Jesus' death for your sin, if you've never turned in repentance to make him your Lord and Saviour, there's still time. Of course, at any day, he could sever the ties completely, which he's completely right to do, and he will do. So if you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, don't delay. Come back to God. Ask a trusted Christian friend how you can have eternal life. But for those of us who are in Christ, here's where I think the rubber hits the road from the passage for us. First of all, get to know your church. These are the fellow soldiers who might one day be carrying the wounded you back to safety. They might be banging you back on track. So invest in the relationships in your church family. Come to the weekend away. I know there's a cost in time and comfort and money, but the benefit in relationship and Christian fellowship far outweighs the cost. Sign up to a growth group. I visited one of our uh, church family in hospital a while ago, and I learned that all the other people that had visited this particular person were all members of the growth group. How good and right that there's a little support network there. Join up to a growth group. Commit to weekly gathering. Decide to come to church once. You know what I mean by that? You don't choose every Sunday whether or not I'm going to come here. I've decided once that I will be at church. You make one decision and that's what happens. Uh, I'm really unapologetic about this, even though I know it grates for a lot of people. Uh, Mature Christians are committed to weekly church gathering. Second, don't let people off the hook. We have this cultural problem where we think that politeness equals godliness. That is not true. You need to pursue the faltering believer even at the expense of friendship. Remember that your fellow Christian is a brother or sister before they're a friend. Friendship isn't nearly as important as eternity. 
And if someone knows they're genuinely loved and cared for by you, then you will have the platform to address their ongoing sinfulness tactfully and you'll be able to turn them back to following the Lord. I hope someone does that for me if and when it's needed. And I hope I'll do that for someone else if and when it's needed. And finally, praise, pray and pray. Uh, You can never pray enough. You can never praise God enough. Uh, There's a bit of a culture of kind of like standing but not singing during congregational singing, even when the songs are of praise to God. Uh, Here's what I think of that. Smash it. Get rid of it. I know it might be weird for people, but I kind of don't care. (laughs) Um, Praise God. If you're happy, if you can acknowledge the many blessings he's given us, and there's always something to acknowledge, like the death of Jesus, for example, sing. Express your gratitude and your praise to him. Uh, Traditional Anglicanism, as outlined in the Book of Common Prayer, this is our sort of denominational heritage, calls the regular Sunday gathering, sorry, not Sunday, the regular daily gathering, morning prayer and evening prayer. When the church comes together, what are you doing? We're praying together. Now, we're hearing the word of God, we're singing songs, we're teaching and building. What is it, What are they thought to call it, though? They thought to call it prayer. Isn't that interesting? Speaking of which, let me conclude our time together in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, went to extreme lengths to bring wandering sinners like us back into a right relationship with you. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would help each and every one of us to live a God-centred life and that we would learn what it is to rely and depend on one another when we're weakened in the faith. Uh, Father, may we lean in to our church family and find solace and comfort and assurance and encouragement uh, from your gift of other people to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.